right, well, good morning. Good to see you all. My name is Luke Bilesma, as Danny introduced earlier, and uh, we're glad for the privilege and joy of being with you this morning. A time to open up the Word and share a couple of things about what the Lord is doing in our life. And I want to just begin by uh, telling you a little bit about us. Um, my wife and I, we are joyed for the privilege to be here in Utah. We came uh, back in August, and it was about a five-year process for the Lord to work in our hearts and convince us this is the place he wanted us to be. We had thought about four missions. We were considering opportunities to, um, to look at opportunities across the ocean, and the Lord closed those doors and then began to open doors here in Utah and working in our hearts. And just interestingly, that song, All to Us This Morning, just so happens to be the song we sang right when we announced to our church where we had been pastoring, I've been pastoring there for eight years, and we sang that song and then announced to the church we're, we're leaving. And so that song is our Utah song, and you didn't know that, but thank you. So we're trying to keep it together this morning, remembering why we're here. And it's an encouragement to us that he is all to us, isn't he? Amen. And that's the heartbeat and motive for why we came here. And God has allowed us to have a chance to participate in a church planting and revitalization fellowship at Gospel Grace Church, and we've been there uh, doing that, hanging out with Will Galkin. Some of you know him. Uh, I spend probably too much time with him, but I still love him anyways, and uh, uh, enjoy the time to be equipped and trained. And then also, we're just praying for the Lord's wisdom on where he wants us to go here. Uh, We're looking at building a team, talking to people who wants to join us, where the Lord would send us, and uh, we're just praying for the Lord's direction and clarity. And our heart in particular, though, is in church revitalization. We have a burden to see healthy churches established here in Utah. We know the value of the church and its witness to the watching world, and we just want to serve the Lord in that way. We want to be faithful in what God has called us in that regard. But as I think about this idea of church reforming or church revitalization, I realize it's really a bigger thing than just the Biles must. It's a bigger thing than gospel hope. It's a bigger thing than gospel grace and gospel peace and then the other church networks here in the valley. It is much bigger than that. Seeing healthy churches in northern Utah is the burden that Jesus has. It's his delight, his desire. It's his desire that the church would, in fact, burn for his glory, burn brightly to magnify him. And so our desire really is to key off of Jesus' desire as the one who is the true reformer. He is the one who is ultimately seeking and desiring to to have his church reflect his glory so the nations can be glad. We just sang about that. I mean, that's his longing. So this morning, what I want to do is I want to show you how Jesus comes to his church and speaks to his church and calls it to reform. Now, on, on the surface, we might ask the question, well, where in Scripture do we find that Jesus is reforming any church? He ascends in Acts 1, the church comes in Acts 2. So Jesus doesn't seem like he's really hanging out with the church during that time. But what we find in Scripture, at the end of the Bible and Revelation, is a picture of Jesus' burden and deep desire for his church that they would make much of his name. And so what I want to do this morning is show you, in particular, a church, the church of Ephesus. We can't look at all seven. We would be here for a long time. We're going to look at the church in Ephesus in chapter 2, 1 through 7, where Jesus is 
He's calling them to reform, calling them to some kind of change. And so the question that we're going to answer this morning is, how does Jesus call the church to reform? In what way does Jesus call this church to reform? And then the question becomes ours. As we'll see, the question becomes, what does Jesus want gospel hope to be? What does Jesus want all the churches in northern Utah to be? What is his burden for the churches? So the answer to that question, how does Jesus call churches to reform, comes in two ways, two simple points. By means of his identity and by means of his word. His identity and his word. Let me just read the passage for you, and then we'll pray and we'll we'll dig into the text. Chapter 2, verse 1 says this, To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write this, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for this privilege to open your word this morning. We're privileged to sing what we just sang this morning, remembering who it's all about. All of our life, Lord, all of it is about you, making much of you. Lord, may we praise your name this morning as we listen to your word. Father, would you work in each heart in this room? Help them, Father, to hear your words, to hear what the Spirit says, to listen to the words of Jesus. And Father, would you affect change in our hearts through that, Lord? We long to become more like you. We long that that phrase, all to us, would become more and more true in our hearts. That our hearts would burn with a longing and a desire to make much of you, Father. Would that be true today? Would you help me, Father, as I communicate your word to glorify you, that your word would be clear, that you would be magnified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, we're going to start here with this question. As I mentioned, how does Jesus reform the churches by means of his identity? By means of his identity, a long time ago, I had the privilege and opportunity to do this basketball camp. I was in college. I was trying out for a basketball team. Uh, It may not look like it now, but I did actually play at one point in my life and could actually run more than 50 feet and uh, had an opportunity to go and try out. And so part of that was a basketball camp where we were helping referee And I don't know how, but I got the lucky opportunity of being the one who refereed all the girls' games. And girls, you do great. You're very good at basketball. I'm just putting that out there. And I, as a ref, though, was not so effective. Uh, I would go out there and try my best to make calls, and I would miss a call. Someone would get a foul, if you know basketball. Or someone would get a foul, and I wouldn't call it. And it was one of those games where I sat down and thought, that was not my best. But I went and sat next to this particular guy who is also one of the guys refing. 
he was just kind of like, you know, you didn't really do a great job, just kind of pointing out things. I'm like, who are you? Like, it's harder than you think. That was my statement to him. It's harder than you think. You know, I really did a great job, uh, mostly. And I had no clue in that moment, while I was justifying myself, the guy next to me who was talking to me actually was a real ref who actually went and got certifications and all those things and actually probably coached and refereed uh, college basketball. And I found that out later, and it embarrassed me when I realized that I had no clue that that was the case. And here I am saying, like, I know what I'm doing and I'm messing up and justifying myself. I think you know what I mean when you say this, that identity matters when it comes to how we listen to people. When we, when we know who their identity is, all of a sudden how we listen to them changes drastically. This is especially true when it comes to positions of authority over us. Children, when you remember your parents or your parents, they have authority, don't they? They have this place of authority over you to tell you things. And this is the case here in the churches to Ephesus. And the message to Ephesus from Jesus, his words. Jesus comes with this identity, as we'll see in a second, that gives him the right to speak to the churches. It gives him the right to have the authority over them. What we're going to see, and if you look at all the seven letters, we don't have time this morning to look at all of them, but in every one of the letters, he begins with a description of who Jesus is. Based on chapter 1, verses 12 through 20, he's pulling out most of, not all the churches, but most of the churches are connecting back to the identity of Jesus there. And he's establishing that Jesus' identity gives him the right to speak. Gives him the right to speak to his church. Look at, look at chapter 2, verse 8. The words of the first and last who died and came to life. Then skip down to chapter 2, verse 12. The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Then chapter 2, verse 18, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze and on and on it goes through all the seven letters describing Jesus' identity, giving us clarity on who this person is. And it's his identity that validates his right to speak to the churches. So specifically this morning as we look at Ephesus, we want to see how Jesus describes himself in verse 1. He's described this way, to him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. It's kind of interesting picture. If you've read Revelation, you know there's lots of imagery going on. But what does he mean when he says he's holding these seven stars? What are, or maybe better yet, who are these seven stars that are in his hand? And what does it even mean then about who Jesus is? We find an answer in chapter 1, verse 20. When Jesus is giving an interpretation on what these images mean, he says, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So Jesus is offering, thankfully in this case, a clear understanding of who the seven stars are. They are these angels. Now there's discussions about who the angels might be exactly or what their role is, but clearly they are representing churches and they are carrying out some responsibility to bring a message to those churches. So it's these messengers that Jesus is holding in his right hand. It might seem odd to us, this picture, holding stars in his hand, 
but not odd for revelation especially. And then when we begin to think about what this means then about Jesus and the church, Jesus holding the stars in his hand demonstrates that he has the sovereignty over the church. He is the one who's ultimately in control of his church. He's the one who's caring for his church. He's the one who has the right to speak to his church. But then it keeps going. We have the seven stars, and then he is the one who's walking among the seven lampstands. We saw in chapter 1, verse 20, the seven lampstands are representing the seven churches. Now I want you just to imagine the scene for a second. Maybe a room, it's dark, except for the fact that there's these lampstands that are up on these shelves or on these tables, illuminating light. And there's this person who's walking in and out of all of these lampstands. And it's Jesus. And he's walking in and out of them and he's inspecting them. He's looking at the flame, watching how it's working. Is it producing the light it's supposed to produce? Is it accomplishing the purpose that he has for it? And as we think about his identity as the one who walks among the seven lampstands, we know that he has authority over those lamps. Chapter 2, verse 5 actually says he has the authority to remove a lamp. He has a care and desire to see those lamps burn brightly for his glory. He cares for them. He examines them. He knows all that's going on. He looks at them intently and he knows all the faults and all the good things. So Jesus' identity right at the beginning reminds us that he has the authority to speak because he is sovereignly in control and he has authority over all the churches. He sees all that's going on. What does that mean for you and I? What does it mean for Gospel Hope Church? I think we need to ask ourselves this question. Whose church is this? Whose church is this? Now think about that. At times, I think we're right in saying, this is our church. Now, I'm not a member here, but I'm just speaking for you, right? This is our church. This is our church because we put sweat and toil into it. Some of you put a lot of time here. This is our church because this is our family. This is our church because we've covenanted together in membership with these people. This is our church, right? And in one sense, we can say, yeah, that's true. But let's not mistake that for understanding who this church belongs to. This church belongs to Jesus. He is the one who has authority. He knows what it should look like. He knows what it should be busy doing. He knows how it should change. This is Jesus' church. When we see it that way, it keeps us from expecting the church to conform to our preferences and our desires and whatever whim and thing you have going on in your mind right now about what the church should be or maybe what the church down the road is supposed to be. Pastor Danny, can't we be more like them? Like, no, 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 we're about who Jesus is. Okay, we need to remember that. So we need to submit to the authority of Jesus and his right to bring change and lead his church. We have to remember it was Jesus who shed his blood for the church, his bride. And we have the privilege of being members of it and we should humbly submit to whatever he calls the church to. As I think about Northern Utah, I think one of the greatest needs that are here among the churches is to see Jesus for who he really is. To see Jesus for who he really is, the one who has all authority, all sovereignty, full control, love and care, and as we have that right and and honest 
perspective of who Jesus is, then we can become the kind of church that he wants us to be. When we see him for who he is, then we can become a church that burns brightly for his glory and magnifies him here in the valley. So with our eyes focused on Jesus' identity, we want to tune our ears now into what he says. Jesus calls the church to reform by means of his identity, but also by means of his word. That these words in verse 1, the words of him, of Jesus, are seen in every single one of these addresses to these different letters. If you just look in your Bible, you'll see that. In verse 1, the words of him. And you go to verse 8, the words of him. And you keep going on through all the churches. They're all beginning with the words, the words, the words, because it's coming from Jesus. They're all directed specifically to specific churches like Ephesus or Pergamum and so on. But what we need to understand is that they have a purpose for all of the churches, not just for one church in particular. Look at verse 7. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the church as. So while the the Lord is speaking directly to Ephesus, he's also speaking generally to all the churches who are receiving this letter. They all need to read each other's mail. Parents in the room, think back for a second to that moment this week when you were confronting a child about some sin. You know what I'm talking about? And there was something going on. They, They weren't obeying or they weren't treating their sibling nicely. And as you were talking to that particular child, there was another child over here you were really hoping would hear too. And you're talking to the you singular, but having in your mind the you plural. You all need to listen to what I'm telling Joey, okay? Billy and Susie, you need to listen as well. And kids in the room, you know what I'm talking about as well, don't you? Your mom talks to the one child, and you're listening very attentively. What is she saying? And if you're like me, the youngest child, that gives you a lot of opportunities to not get as many consequences in life. Because you're listening to all of your siblings who are older make the mistakes and what your parents tell them, and then you just do the right thing. So there's a little tip for you kids this morning. And in a similar way, Jesus is writing to the church of Ephesus, but he wants all of them to hear what he is saying to the churches. This is also true then for us today as well. I think commentators are right in saying Because there are seven churches, and seven, this number is very significant in Revelation, referring to the completion. So these these messages then are a complete message that Jesus has to all churches, to gospel hope today too. So then the letter to the Ephesian church becomes a letter to gospel hope for you to listen this morning. What does Jesus say? There's one more thing I want to point out before we look at those things he says I love how this works. So in chapter 2, verse 1, we begin with the words of him, of Jesus. Then go to verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the, what's the next word? The Spirit says. Interesting. The words of Jesus, the words of the Spirit. What we find here is that the Word of God and the Spirit of God are working in tandem together for the purpose of your sanctification and the purpose of the continual reformation of the church. This is the means of change that God has given, the word of God and the spirit of God. That's why we preach the word every week, isn't it? That's why we come on Sunday, so that the word of God can transform us and the spirit can use it in our life individually as we continue to look more and more like Christ, but then collectively so that gospel hope can burn brighter and brighter for the glory of Christ. So with that in mind, let's look at what Jesus says Look at verse 2. 
Jesus says, I know. If you just follow along again in those seven letters, you'll see that repetition. I know, I know, I know. It's over and over again. He's repeating this idea that he sees all. And what follows is a commendation sometimes. Good job, church, you're doing good here. At other times, a confrontation or a conviction. Church, you're not doing good here. But Jesus, he knows all. He sees all. He's the one walking among the lampstand. He sees everything on that lamp. He knows all its failures and all its successes. In fact, if you go to chapter 2, verse 23, there's this very convicting verse. Speaking of Jesus, he says, And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. He searches mind and heart. He knows all that's in your heart right now. He knows Jesus knows. What we see here first is that Jesus knows how they were unable to bear, verse two, unable to bear under the false teaching of others. Look at verse two. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. This is a demonstration of their commitment to orthodoxy. They understood that that is false theology and this is right theology. What's really interesting is earlier in the Ephesian history, when the church was just getting started, Paul left them with a warning in Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 30. He told them, verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. From among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So Paul had warned them many years before, watch out, people will come in. And here we find later, they were doing well. They were identifying people who were communicating false truth. And then we see in verse 6, we see another commendation. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. The Nicolaitans were likely those who were promoting some kind of immorality and idolatry. So on the one hand, there is this theology their understanding is false over here, and then there's immorality and idolatry taking place over here. Those two practices specifically would have been very common in Ephesus, a place where the the goddess Artemis was, was reigning, if you will. The pagan worship would have promoted immorality and idolatry. So in this sense, they were unable to bear with it. Like, this is wrong, they could identify. But then in a different sense, verse three comes. Look at verse three. I know you are enduring patiently, and in this case, you're bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Can you imagine what it would be like to live in Ephesus? Can you imagine living in a place with a massive temple dedicated to a goddess that promotes immorality and idolatry? Can you imagine living in a city where thieves are welcomed? This is the place they can hang out. Can you imagine living in a city that is so passionate about its idolatrous worship that when Paul was there in Acts chapter 19 and they're proclaiming the gospel, a riot broke out in the town and for two hours, Every time I read this, I'm just like, how did they say this for two hours? Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They chanted that over and over. Just try it later this afternoon. See how it goes for you. Two hours. They are passionate about this idolatrous and pagan worship. 
Yet here in this city not so friendly to Christians was a group of believers who were bearing up for the sake of Jesus' name. That is wonderful. They were enduring patiently. They were not growing weary. They were concerned about walking lives of holiness and integrity, calling out false theology, calling out immorality, and they were living for him, making much of his name. So Jesus commends them for their orthodoxy. They were theologically acute, really aware of where errors were at, and they were keenly aware of people living in immorality, following the cultural movements of their day. But Jesus' words are not done. Kind of wish they were, but they're not. The all-knowing, all-seeing Jesus who walks among the lampstands brought to the surface a deep deficiency in the church. A deficiency that was served to blow a hole in their hot air balloon of Christian living. One that would shoot right to the heart of their issue with a laser focus, and it's only Jesus. It is only Jesus who is able to pinpoint our deficiencies with such precision. He's able to work through all of the ways we're living in good ways, in theology, understanding what's wrong, in immorality, that's not okay to live. And Jesus is able to go right between all of that and say, this is where you're falling short. And here we come to verse four. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. At first you might think, what? I thought this church was doing great. I thought they were like, okay, false teacher, immorality, that's not okay. And now he's telling them, uh, I think you lost your first love. You lost the love you had at first. The deficiency was so serious that Jesus was saying, I'll remove your lampstand if you don't take care of this. Your gospel witness is in jeopardy because of the way that you're living. So in what way have they lost their first love? I think simply put, they had abandoned their love for Jesus, which resulted in a deficient love for others. And the impact of that was their gospel witness was weakened significantly. To color this in a little bit more, Mark chapter 12 tells us really the greatest commandment. Jesus is answering the question, what is the greatest commandment? This is familiar to many of you. And it helps us think about what he's communicating here. Jesus says, the most important is this, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these, none. Jesus' words demonstrate that there are two primary directions our affections should go, vertically to God, and then horizontally to the people next to us. And the first one comes vertically, and then it flows out second horizontally. And John picks up in a different book he writes in 1 John on this same theme. I'm just going to read this for you, John chapter 4, verse 20 and 21. And he's telling us about the importance of the relationship between our love for God and our love for others. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. All Christians are called to love God and then to love one another. And John's point is very clear in this first letter, as it is clear here in Revelation chapter 2, that our love for one another is a demonstration then of our love for God. So if we don't love those next to us, how can we say that we love the one 
above us. And this is likely where the Ephesians were at. They were seeing a shortfall in their love for their neighbor, which was demonstrating a, love, a lack of love for God. They were commended for their theological acuteness. They were commended for their moral integrity, but they did not love Jesus and one another. The church of Ephesus was likely the kind of church that would have been able to call out false theology. Maybe there were false teachers in town and they could collectively say, you know what, that's wrong theology. That's wrong, we shouldn't go there. Or maybe even people in their midst, okay, you're not part of our church anymore because you're promoting wrong theology. They could identify the immorality in town. Oh, that's sin, and that's sin, and that's sin. They could do all of those things. They could point out all the ways society was falling apart around them. And this is something that Jesus commended them for. I don't want to miss that this morning. Those are good things. Yet this may have been the kind of church that showed little love for Christians who were within their church. They may have failed to care for one another's needs. They may have allowed their awareness of the other person's shortcomings. Oh, they don't believe the same thing I do. I'm not going to help them. They may have had little love for the lost around them. Oh, they're living in immorality. I want nothing to do with them. Oh, they have wrong theology. I want nothing to do with them. I'm going to avoid all of those people. I'm going to turn inward just to myself and remember that's wrong and that's wrong and I'm just going to live right here. In this way, they have failed to burn brightly for the glory of Jesus. They had failed to magnify him. There are any number of ways this could have looked like in that church, but when we abandon our first love, our love for Jesus, it trickles into every facet of our life like a, like a bad water leak in your house where it just invades every corner of the house. When we fail to love Jesus, it impacts everything. So how about you? How about gospel hope? Have you abandoned your first love? Have you forsaken the love for Jesus that you had at first? Now, on the surface, these might be easy questions to answer. Like, no, I haven't abandoned. I haven't abandoned that. We might think that at times. But I think if we're honest with ourselves, we're going to admit to some degree, to some degree in our hearts, we don't have as deep of a love for Jesus as we should. Like the embers in the fireplace that brighten and diminish over time. Sometimes our love for Jesus, it gets brighter at moments and diminishes at other moments. And even if you love Jesus much, we all know we can love him even more, can't we? So in one sense, this issue is real in all of our lives to a certain degree. But Jesus doesn't just tell them these things, commending, confronting them. Jesus, in his precision, is able to identify the issue and then in his precision is able to say, this is what you need to do. You need to remember. Look at verse five. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. There are three commands here in this verse. The second, or the last two, are really flowing from the first to remember. Recall to remember. And out of those two remembering is this idea of repenting, turning back away from, and then doing what was done before. Now, if you're married, it might be like your anniversary or, guys, just as like a heads up, Valentine's Day is coming very soon. I just remember this week, okay? So I'm telling you, you're telling me, let's get prepared, okay? So anniversary, your anniversary is coming around or Valentine's Day is coming and you're remembering back to your first love. I mean, just think about that. Those moments when you're about to walk down the aisle together. 
Your love is fresh and full. And every anniversary or Valentine's Day or whatever day you celebrate, you're thinking back to those moments and your joy and your love for one another is rekindled. The flames are ignited again. In a similar way, we're called to remember what Jesus has done for us so that the flames in our heart would burn more, that our love for him would grow greater, so that the rust would fall off, so to speak, of our marriages, or in this case, of our love for Jesus, and we would do the works we did at first. We'd remember back, guys, to all the things we did when we first were trying to get our wives to say yes, and maybe think about doing some of those things now so we can continue to woo them. But in a similar way, we think about Jesus and what he's done for you and me. If we remember those things, it'll move us. It'll reignite our hearts and our love for him. The church needs to constantly be reforming by remembering their love for Jesus. Do you remember this morning those moments when you came to Jesus? Do you remember the feeling of that big burden of sin rolling off of your shoulders at the cross? Do you remember the feeling? Do you remember the joy of knowing you were forgiven? There is no condemnation. Do you remember the joy you had? And man, even those people that drove you crazy and they're ready to just poke at you, like, oh man, I just love you. Jesus loves you too. Like, you didn't matter to you anymore because you had a love for Jesus and a love for others. Do you remember this morning? Do you remember what Jesus has done for you? Imagine how this kind of remembering would do well for each of us individually. How this kind of remembering would do well for gospel hope. And how this kind of remembering would do for all the churches in northern Utah. Christ would be made much of. All of us need to see our hearts grow warmer and warmer. Greater affection for Jesus and greater affection for others. So Jesus' words to the church told him, that he knew all of their heart. He knew everything in their heart. He calls them to remember, and then he says this, hear what the Spirit says. Verse seven, hear, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The reality is that not everyone is going to hear what the Spirit says. Not everyone this morning is going to listen to what Jesus is saying. Unfortunately, some of you will not hear. The words may pass into your ear, but there won't be any affection in your heart that's changing. May that be none of us today, though. May that not be us who would refuse to listen to what Jesus is saying to the church and refuse to listen to what Jesus is saying to each of us individually. But conversely, may we all listen. May it be that everyone in this room says, yes, I'm going to hear, and I'm going to come with humility to admit that we are not perfect. Even our churches are not perfect and we're in the desire to reflect Christ more today. May we have the humility to look into our, to our hearts and see the ways that our love for Jesus has grown cold. Let me just tell you, I was preparing this week and just thinking on this. I thought, man, my heart is grown cold. Like, it happens so easy. Like, may the Lord work in our hearts and give us the humility so that he can burn passion in our life so we can effectively love him and others. Proclaim his glory in light of that. May we have the humility to seek his face today to remember what he has done for us. And then I just love how he ends. This last theme that runs through all of these letters, he says, to the one who conquers, I will grant eat of the tree of life. 
which is in the paradise of God. These are amazing words. For the Ephesians, for gospel hope, for you and me, the one who hears these words, who conquers, will have the promise of eternal life with him. The same tree that was offered in the garden, the same tree that was guarded by the angels after sin, that same tree is now made accessible through another tree. It's through the cross. Grant Osborne says this, behind the tree of life and the final reward is the tree on which Christ was slain. Jesus' death for our sin, his resurrection, which demonstrates his victory over sin, and then the victory we read here in Revelation, like Jesus is the one who's victorious, isn't he? He's the one who has overcome. And our ability to overcome doesn't come from our strength or our wisdom or our might. It comes because of Jesus. It comes because we're able to trust in him through faith. And when we trust in Jesus, then that victory becomes our own and we conquer. And then we're able to enjoy the benefit of what comes. To those of us who are Christians, this means that we should continually daily follow Jesus in our lives, remembering the words he has said, acting upon them in the remembrance of our first love for him. We are given a reminder of the future promise, the hope that we have, and this future hope, it always fuels present living, always does. When our eyes are fixed there and what will come, but to those this morning who do not know Jesus, this means that in order to gain access to the tree of life, you must first come to the tree in Gethsemane. To Jesus in Gethsemane who prays, to the tree in which he dies, where you must believe that Jesus' death on the cross was enough for you. You must come to that tree for it to have the effect that is necessary for your sins to be covered. And when you do this, you can enjoy this blessed promise of eternal life. Jesus cares about his church. He cares about his church reforming being shaped more into his likeness, he desires that his church would burn brightly for his glory and his namesake. His identity is the one that gives him the right to speak, his authority, his sovereignty, his care and love for the church. These are the words for gospel hope. These are the words for gospel grace and gospel peace. These are the words for all the churches in northern Utah. And Jesus has the right to speak to every one of them. This is why we are burdened to pursue church revitalization in northern Utah. We know there are churches like Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. We know there are churches like these because all of us fall into one of these camps at different times in our life. We know that Jesus, the great reformer, cares much about his churches growing healthy so that the light of their lampstand can shine brightly for him in this needy place.